Well, if you'll keep your Bibles open and let's flip over to the Old Testament, 2 Kings chapter 3. It's going to start on page 391 of your pew Bibles, if that's what you're using. We're going to read chapter 3 in its entirety, all 27 verses. As we look at this next scene in the life of God's prophet Elisha, the successor of God's prophet Elijah. Let us hear from God's word together. In the 18th year of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, Jehoram, the son of Ahab, became king over Israel and Samaria, and he reigned 12 years. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, though not like his father and mother, for he put away the pillar of Baal that his father had made. Nevertheless, he clung to the sin of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. He did not depart from it. Now Misha, king of Moab, was a sheep breeder, and he had to deliver to the king of Israel 100,000 lambs and the wool of 100,000 rams. But when Ahab died, the king of Moab rebelled against the king of Israel. So King Jehoram marched out of Samaria at that time and mustered all Israel. And he went and sent word to Jehoshaphat, king of Judah. The king of Moab has rebelled against me. Will you go with me to battle against Moab? And he said, I will go. I am as you are, my people as your people, my horses as your horses. Then he said, By which way shall we march? Jehoram answered, By the way of the wilderness of Edom. And so the king of Israel went with the king of Judah and the king of Edom. And when they had made a circuitous march of seven days, there was no water for the army or for the animals that followed them. Then the king of Israel said, Alas, the Lord has called these three kings to give them into the hand of Moab. And Jehoshaphat said, Is there no prophet of the Lord here, through whom we may inquire of the Lord? Then one of the king of Israel's servants answered, Elisha, the son of Shaphath, is here, who poured water on the hands of Elijah. And Jehoshaphat said, The word of the Lord is with him. So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat and the king of Edom went down to him. And Elisha said to the king of Israel, What have I to do with you? Go to the prophets of your father and to the prophets of your mother. But the king of Israel said to him, No, it is the Lord who has called these three kings to give them into the hand of Moab. And Elisha said, As the Lord of hosts lives, before whom I stand, were it not that I have regard for Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, I would neither look at you nor see you, but bring me a musician." And when the musician played, the hand of the Lord came upon him. And he said, Thus says the Lord, I will make this dry stream bed full of pools. For thus says the Lord, You shall not see wind or rain, but the stream, that stream bed shall be filled with water, so that you shall drink you, your livestock, and your animals. This is a light thing in the sight of the Lord. He will also give you the Moabites into your hand, and you shall attack every fortified city and every choice city and shall fell every good tree and stop up all springs of water and ruin every good piece of land with stones. The next morning about the time of the offering, the sacrifice, behold, water came from the direction of Edom till the country was filled with water. 
when all the Moabites heard that the kings had come up to fight against them, all who were able to put on armor from the youngest to the oldest were called out and were drawn up at the border. And when they rose early in the morning and the sun shone on the water, the Moabites saw the water opposite them as red as blood. And they said, this is blood. The kings have surely fought together. And they struck one another down. Now then, Moab, to the spool. But when they came to the camp of Israel, and the Israelites rose and struck the Moabites till they fled before them. And they went forward, striking the Moabites as they went. And they overthrew the cities. And on every good piece of land, every man threw a stone until it was covered. They stopped every spring of water and felled all the good trees till only its stones were left in Kirahaseth. And the slingers surrounded and attacked it. When the kings of Moab saw that the battle was going against him, he took with him 700 swordsmen to break through opposite the king of Edom, but they could not. Then he took his oldest son, who was to reign in his place, and offered him for a burnt offering on the wall. And there came great wrath against Israel. And they withdrew from him and returned to their own land. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God remains forever and ever. Let us ask for God's help as we spend some time expounding these texts. Father in heaven, we do come knowing that you have indeed spoke to us. We think about Romans 12 and we think here about 2 Kings 3. And we, we know, O oh Lord, that these are your holy, inspired, and authoritative scriptures. And so, Father, would you take these truths and write them upon our hearts, send the Holy Spirit to us so that we might apply them to our daily walk with thee, so that we might grow in Christ's likeness, so that we might mortify sin, and so that we might be seen as faithful servants of the King of kings and the Lord of lords. We pray that you would speak loudly to us now. For us, your servants are listening. In the name of Christ Jesus, we pray these things. Amen. Well, it's early on here in the ministry and life of Elisha as he is serving as the prophet of the Lord. You remember that his mentor, Elijah, has been called up into the heavens there by the angelic host of armies with the fiery horses and the fiery chariots. And now Elisha has struck out on his own and he is beginning to perform many miracles. In fact, even next or the following week after next week, in two weeks, Lord willing, we will see some of the same miracles in which were performed by Elijah as Elisha visits a widow and her son. But it seems as if the author of these particular verses, these texts, want us to pay careful attention to the way that Elisha's ministry is confirmed, examined, and validated by these miracles. You know it's immediately after Elijah is called into the heavens that Elisha picks up the cloak of Elijah and he says something along the lines of, where is the God of Elijah? And he takes Elijah's cloak and he strikes the river Jordan and the Jordan River splits so that so that Elisha, the prophet of the Lord, could walk across on dry ground. And, the, and then, of course, you see Elisha healing the waters of Jericho. You see Elisha cursing, as we saw last week in that very difficult text. You see Elisha cursing those young men who were ridiculing the prophet, commanding him to leave and to die 
uh, and God confirming or validating Elisha as he sends the she-bears to maul his enemies. And here it is that, that we see other miracles of the Lord through the prophet Elisha. As, as Elisha commands forth water out of Edom to fill the ditches or the ravines of this dry ground with water as, as, the, as the enemies of God, the Moabites, as they look upon this water, they see blood and not water so that they are tricked and fooled into attacking God's people and ultimately being destroyed. All of these miracles that are being performed by God's prophet has spiritual meaning and application for us. It actually shows us that God will uh, go, through, go through anything that He has to do to fulfill the promises for His people. You know, as good Presbyterians, we believe in these ordinary means in which God has established not only our worship, but the world. You know, things like rain falling from the sky to water vegetation here on the earth. The sun rising and setting. The moon giving light by night. We have all of these natural orders of things and and God establishes them and calls them good. And yet our confession also says that at any time He sees fit, He can work against His natural created order. He can work through it. He can work above it or He can work below it. And it says if God is establishing this truth before us in these miracles, that He will do whatever it takes in His will to confirm His people, to protect His people, to give victory to His people. And here it is, we see miracle after miracle as God protects Israel and Judah from their enemies as He calls them, as He confirms Himself to be the Lord, the God Almighty, and, and, and commands them to turn away from idols and, and worshiping false gods, this, this miracle or these miracles that are before us draws our attention back to the Lord of hosts, the Lord of Elijah and Elisha. You know, it's, it's here that that we see very supernatural things. Not only water filling the ravines, but, but the Lord confusing the enemies of God so that they might see the blood in those ravines. So that they might think that these three kings, the king of Judah, the king of Israel, and the king of Edom have turned on each other as they've camped and they have slaughtered one another. And it's Moabite for the win, it seems. Victory to us. Let us go take their spool, their riches. It's, it's a confusion that the Lord has placed upon the enemies of God and His people. It's even there in verse 25 as the king of Moab stands and he looks at the slaughtering of his mighty men. He takes 700 more men. These swordsmen. These would be the special forces of the Moabite army, and they cannot break the line of God's people. And in an ultimate Hail Mary of sorts, he then sacrifices his own son to these false gods. And it's then that the ultimate 
The ultimate vengeance of the Lord is broken upon the Moabites as the people of God acting on behalf of God turn their face from the Moabites, forsaking them. Not only do they destroy their physical cities, but they also cast a curse upon their spiritual lives. So much is going on here, and, and, and admittedly it would be very easy to think about the rejection of the Lord by the Moabites, but I actually want to draw our attention to three things here that really infuriate the prophet Elisha. Three troubles that Elisha has here in chapter 3 against Jehoram and God's people. And those three things are, for the sake of notes, that Jehoram would only repent of some sin. That he wouldn't repent from all sin. He's going to have trouble. He's going to be frustrated. He's going to grow in a holy, righteous anger over that. The second thing is that he sees Jehoram and God's people compromising truth. Compromising truth. And he's going to grow in his frustration with God's people over that. And then he is going to see, uh, ultimately, this, this idea of, how would we say it? Uh, good godly counsel being ignored. How about that? Good con- godly counsel being ignored. And he is going to show his frustration in that as well. So let's dig into that first little point where Jehoram, king of Israel, believes that he only has to repent from selective or or partial sins. You see that in verse 2 and 3, don't you? After he's introduced to us as uh, king of Israel, there in the capital of the kingdom of Israel, Samaria, it says that he reigned 12 years to give you some historic context. It then tells you, as it often does in First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles, how this king obeyed the laws of God. In verse 2 it says, And he did what was evil in the sight of Yahweh, or the Lord. Though, I love this little tag here, though... Not like his father and mother, for he put away the pillar of Baal that his father had made. Verse 3, nevertheless he clung to the sin of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which made Israel to sin. He did not depart from it. You see, here it is that I think we understand Jehoram as almost in this fear for his life. In this historical context that we have, as it says that he becomes the as he becomes the king of Israel there in the capital of Samaria, and there he reigns in Samaria on the throne for 12 years, we have to understand that his history has shown us that he is coming after another king. A king has died, and now Jehoram has, has taken the throne. And of course, he follows King Ahab. King Ahab was the king of Israel before Jehoram, and we know something about King Ahab and then his son. He follows not only in the line of evil kings, but he follows in the line of kings who have uh, reigned a short amount of time, who in fact have been put to death by God's holy and righteous judgment. And so he says, I don't want to die at the hands of the Lord like my forefathers have done. I am fearful for my life, therefore I will 
quote-unquote, serve God. And so they begin to look at, or he begins to look at what his forefathers were guilty of. And he says, you know what? They were guilty of, of worshiping Baal. And so I'm going to cast out the God of Baal out of my kingdom. But one thing they didn't do, they didn't worship the God of Jeroboam. So, you know, I, I like this idea of idolatry. I, I like this God of Jeroboam. And so I will worship him and I'll cast out Baal. So, so ultimately what he thinks is I'm pleasing God by, by casting Baal out of the kingdom, but I'm also doing evil in the sight of God by worshiping the gods of the false gods of Jeroboam. And so it's this, it's, this, it's this idea of like partial repentance. And we know something about that, I think. Because something happens in our life. Think about some hard circumstance where you were caught in a sin. You were caught in a sin and, and there were going to be some real consequences for this sin. And so in your mind you say this, well, I will never do that again. I'm facing the consequences of doing blank, which is a a very disturbing sin, and and yet I will continue to do X, Y, and Z because I haven't faced any consequences for this yet. Nor has any of my forefathers dealt with this and faced consequences for this. Therefore, as long as I don't do this particular sin, for Jehoram it was worship Baal. As long as I don't just worship Baal, I'll be fine in the sight of God. And yet you see exactly how it's written here about Jehoram. Before it even gives this tag, before it even gives this information about how he casts Baal out of the kingdom, but he worships the gods, the false gods of Jeroboam, it says without any sort of without any sort of commentary, I guess you would say that he does what is evil in the sight of the Lord. We have to understand something about Jehoram. That the fear, that the fear that cast out the sin of worshiping Baal was not the fear of the Lord. Let me repeat that. The fear that caused Jehoram to cast Baal out of the kingdom was not a fear of the Lord. It was fear of the consequences. And that's just what we might call partial reformation. And partial reformation is no reformation at all. You know, sometimes people will profess that they know Christ, and yet they are not fully convinced that it's essential to flee sin. They'll they'll think or they're not fully convinced that it is essential to destroy the idols, the false gods in their own lives. They think that religion is a matter of personal preference and that sin is a matter of one's own personal definition. And yet what our Bibles teach us is that reformation, true reformation of the individual heart is knowing and trusting and following and worshiping only one true and living God as He is revealed to us in one Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. 
You see, as, as King Jehoram begins to set up his kingdom, this 12-year-long kingdom, he is trying to, trying, to, trying to really define worship or define the, the living for the Lord on his terms. And that's not what we are to do. We are to be a people who flee sin, destroy idols, out of a fear of the Lord, not the fear of the consequences that He might bring. And so you think about here in Jehoram's life how things could be different for the king. How things could be different for the king is that he could fear God. That he could fear God. That he could serve the living and the true God. That he could repent from his false worship. He could repent from his sins. And as he repented and as he feared the Lord, as he clung to the Lord, the God Almighty in faith, he would have been saved. He did not learn the lessons of his fathers and his forefathers that went before him. He just simply feared the consequences of his sin. And yet, it did not change a single thing. The way that the author writes wants you, wants you to understand that. He wants you to say or see. He's saying to you, you see, Jehoram's fathers were guilty of idolatry. And in Jehoram's foolishness, he thought he was innocent of idolatry, but he was, in fact, guilty of the same sins that his fathers committed. And therefore, he did evil in the sight of the Lord. There is no partial reformation. There is no partial repentance. But we must put to death sin in our life and pursue Christ-likeness. We must follow the commandments of the Lord. We must live holy as our Christ is holy. We must strive to pick up our cross and follow Him daily. And we must flee from all temptation. But the second thing here is that we want us, or that I want you to see, is that Elisha is is growing in his frustration with Jehoram and God's people, not just because they are kind of half caught in their repentance, but also that they are not seeking counsel from the right source. From the right source. If you look back really at verses 9 through 13, we won't read it again for the sake of time. But you see that they, they come here. Uh, they go through Edom. They, they come here in preparation to attack the enemy. And it's here that they are supposed to refresh themselves, refresh their horses, re- refresh their, uh, you know, sharpen their swords and their spears and their arrows. I'm not sure how uh, preparation for war looked like in these days. But it's here that they are to prepare themselves to fight. And yet when they come to this place, there are ravines, but there is no water for them to drink. And so they are growing, they are becoming very frantic in their anxiety. It's here that they are to put to death Moab or to cast war against Moab, and and they are underprepared. And so it's Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah. And we know something about Jehoshaphat because our Bibles tell us Jehoshaphat is a good and a godly king. He does what is pleasing in the eyes of the Lord there in Judah. And so he 
rightly says, where is the mouthpiece of the Lord? Is there not a man for the, of the Lord that can speak to us? Who can work on our behalf? Can work for our good? And it's Jehoshaphat that immediately turns his attention to good godly counsel. Jehoshaphat proves himself to be wise here in our narrative. And it reminds me of this wisdom literature like in Proverbs chapter 16, 1. Where it says, The preparations of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. Later on in Proverbs 21, 29 through 31, it will say, A wicked man hardens his face, but as for the upright, he establishes his way. There is no wisdom or understanding or counsel against the Lord. The horse is prepared for the day of battle, but deliverance is of the Lord. And immediately, the author wants you to begin comparing Jehoram and Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat is searching out the word of the Lord, and Jehoram is saying, don't bring that man of God anywhere close to me, because surely, there in verse 10, the Lord has called us three kings so that we might be given into the hands of the Moabites. And Jehoshaphat says, no, no, no. Bring us Elisha, for the word of God is with him. And it's here I want us to, to notice two providences of the Lord. Not, not only has God provided for Jehoram a good and a godly king to point him to good godly counsel in Elisha. Think about this. Jehoram, he did not call on Jehoshaphat to fight the Moabites with him because he was a good godly king. He just needed the soldiers. And he says, so Jehoshaphat, will you come fight alongside of me? And what he meant in his plans, the Lord is giving success to them. He has no fear of God. He has no respect for God's people or God's men. He has no, no acknowledgement, you would say, of Jehoshaphat being a good godly king. But here he is. Jehoshaphat, the good godly king through the providence of God, being provided here for Jehoram. And at the same time, we see Jehoshaphat bringing in Elisha. And so here's something that we need to learn. Elisha is going to come onto the scene and he is going to speak to this king, King Jehoram, and he is going to speak the very words of God, but understand what he does first. He rebukes King Jehoram. He rebukes king of, uh, the king of Israel. Jehoram is there in verse 13. And Elisha said to the king of Israel, What have I to do with you? Go to the prophets of your father and to the prophets of your mother. Turn back to your idols, Jehoram. You've trusted them up to this point. You go back to them. The Lord is not on your side, it seems as if He is saying. But then Jehoshaphat speaks. He speaks and he says, No, let us go in the name of the Lord. And then it's when Elisha calls upon the musician and, and Elisha begins to speak about the victory in which they will have over the Moabites. But understand this. Not only must kings of this earth Rulers of this earth acknowledge and heed to God's Word, but they will be judged by God's Word. 
I think that's exactly what's being established here uh, as Elisha rebukes King Jehoram. That he is being judged by the Word of God. He has turned to his idols. And if it wasn't for Jehoshaphat standing there in intercession for the people of God in Israel and Judah, they would have been turned over to their false gods. But Elisha must rebuke the king. And at the same time, I think that that applies to us as well. As a people of God, we must speak to the nations. And what are we to speak? We are to speak God's Word. When all of our leaders are turning left and right to false gods and false religions, we have an active responsibility of our citizenship. God has placed us here to be light into the dark places, salt upon the earth with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And therefore, we must understand that the gospel must be spoken to the nations and also the nations must acknowledge and heed to that gospel unless they be judged. But like I said, Jehoshaphat stands in intercession. This is my third and final point, and I know I'm out of time. In verses 14 through 18, really, we see, we see Elisha we see Elisha speaking to these three kings. But first we see him calling for a musician. Isn't that interesting? That before he speaks on behalf of the Lord, the God Almighty, before he gives them this message of victory over the Moabites, he says, you know what, bring me a musician. Let us sing a song. And and A.W. Pink, one of my favorite commentators, I don't disagree with him in a lot of ways or in a lot of things. But he says it's just, he's, you know, it's just the fact that Elisha, the prophet of God, is so frustrated or so perturbed, is A.W. Pink's word, with King Jehoram that he just needs to compose himself. And he loves music and that means that a musician needs to come play so that he can just you know, have a little bit of a woosah moment. Catch his breath. Get his mind back level so that he can speak on behalf of the Lord. I actually don't think that that's what's going on here. I, I, I think that what we see here is Elisha understanding what the victory of the Lord is to push us to do, is to push us to worship. Psalm 98.5, sing unto the Lord a new song. Sing unto the Lord with a voice of a song. 1 Chronicles 25.3 shows us, as we consider Elisha here showing regard to this, this submission, if you will, of worship to the King of kings and, and the Lord of lords. It's give thanks to the Lord and praise His name. I think it's exactly here that Elisha begins to sing the songs, the Psalms of David. He begins to remember the victory in which God has given His people before over their enemies. And he is, he is overflowing with thanksgiving. And He is saying, I know that Jehoram won't praise. Jehoshaphat might praise, but it means, your victory means that I must praise your name. You think about the, the line that we just sung together. Let those refuse to sing that never knew our God, but children of the heavenly King may speak, may sing their joys 
abroad. I think that's exactly what's happening here. Elisha knows the victory of the Lord, and therefore he calls a musician. And he says, you know what? We're going to sing. We're going to sing psalms back to our God for the good things that He has done. For He has provided salvation for our fathers in the past. And He will provide salvation and victory for us in the future. And beloved, that's exactly our hope today. That the victory in which God gives Jehoshaphat and Elisha over the Moabites. The same victory in which God gave His servant David in the past and Abraham before Him is the God who will give us ultimate victory. And He will usher us into the promised land where we will, where we will receive the eternal legacy, the eternal treasury of heaven as we are co-heirs with our elder brother, Jesus Christ. And there we will worship and we will praise and we will sing forever and ever. Let's pray again. Father in heaven, we do thank You for this time in Your Word. And we pray, O oh Lord, that it would convict where it needs to convict and that it would encourage where it needs to encourage. Let us be those people who are not partial in our repentance, but just as all of our sin was placed upon Christ there on Calvary, let us repent and confess all of our sins knowing that You are just and sure to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And let us also, Lord, be bold enough to say that we are those who know our heavenly King. Therefore, we will speak and we will sing our joys abroad. If that be to call us to sing here in your presence, in your house on the Lord's day, let us sing loudly and with joy in our hearts. And if that means for us to speak of your salvation, even in the presence of wicked kings, may we have the boldness and the authority to do so. We pray these things in the name of Christ Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Amen and amen.